I'm Chris Lindstrom, and this is the Food About Town podcast. Before we get into this week's episode, I just wanted to remind you that you have until September 14th at noon to order for the September 15th Curate event. This is going to be another great local Rochester restaurant, either delivered to your door or picked up at the historic German house. Go to curatemeals.com to order your meal today. In episode 137 of the Food About Town podcast, Adam Schumann, the Spirits Portfolio Manager from Skernick Wines, came over to the studio on a Saturday morning to talk all about what Skernick has to offer with spirits. We did talk about the fantastic Rochester Cocktail Revival event held at the Cub Room in the South Wedge, and I just wanted to talk to more of the people from that event. Hopefully we'll have more in the future. But uh, Adam was really nice enough to join me, uh, recommended by Abel from Skernick. Uh, appreciate that. And he came over and we talked about different foods. We talked about spirits. We nerded out a bit, to be honest. And it was a really nice way to spend a Saturday morning. So if you're looking for interesting things, check out Skernick Wines on their website to see where their products are sold, what they offer, and go to some of the fantastic stores and restaurants around Rochester that carry those products. Enjoy this episode with Adam from Skernick Wines. And we're back with another episode of the Food About Town podcast. It's a beautiful, super comfortable Rochester morning. This is peak weather as far as I'm concerned. 70 degrees coming up. It's cold right now, but sunny, beautiful, hard to beat. And I'm here with a guest on Saturday morning. Guest, why don't you introduce yourself? Uh, hi, guys. It is beautiful. It's like San Diego, but but in Rochester. Yeah, right. Unbelievable. My name is Adam Schumann. Um, I am... I am I am a fan of Rochester. My sister lives in Rochester, so I come up here every once in a while. And uh, professionally speaking, I'm the spirits portfolio manager for a wine and spirits distributor based out of New York City called Skernick Wines. So let's do a quick intro for what is what is Skernick and what's the, for lack of a better way of saying it, what's the mission of Skernick as a company? Because each distributor kind of has a different vibe about them. Yeah. And I know Skernick has, is like self-aware of who they are. Yeah, Skernick is Skernick. Michael Skernick founded Skernick Wines in 1985. Uh, the portfolio itself uh, mostly consists of wine and it was founded on wines out of California. And since then, the portfolio has expanded to wines throughout the world. And, and I was brought on in 2012, late 2012, to help spearhead the, the spirited effort uh, so, so since then we've been going hard and, and, you know, working with different producers from all over the world. And, you know, the, the mission, the mission, uh, there, there's many missions, but we, we represent, you know, people, uh, who, who make beautiful wines and, and spirits and, and other things. And we, we tell their stories and somewhere along the way, you know, people, people buy those things and, uh, and, and everybody gets to keep making them and keep telling those stories and living those stories. So it's, it's been, it's been great, you know, getting to work with incredible, incredible people who are passionate, who, who, who go to these places and meet these people and tell these stories. Yeah. And I think that's from, from my outside perspective, from knowing when I found, oh, this is who distributes that. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. When I taste things and I'm like, oh, I need to find that or get it to one of my buddy's restaurants or something else. And I see Skernick. I'm like, oh yeah, that makes sense that they would rep that, you know, yeah. where there's New York state ciders that are beautiful and unique and wineries that I respect and I go to often. And now on the spirit side, um, 
I got a chance to taste through a number of things with you on Thursday night during yeah. the Rochester Cocktail Revival. Yeah, the other day was uh, RCRs going on and 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 Skernick and and a lot of a lot of other distributors. Skirnick, I didn't I didn't say Skernick is a is a wholesale wholesaler, an importer and wholesaler of wines right. and spirits, right? Which means that you might see it on a bottle or if you research, you're like, oh, I'm trying to find where this is. You might end up on the distributor site. You might end up somewhere else Correct. to find out where you can buy it. Correct. But they're also involved in events and publicizing things. And they might go to a special event. Like yep. if, uh, um, you know, like New York Kitchen's running a spirits event, you know, or a wine event, they might be there representing the local producers or producers from all over the world. Yeah, we have we have people who work on on Skarnik staff. So as as a distributor, you know, we are selling to retailers and to bars and restaurants and the buyers from those bars, restaurants and retail shops have a local Skarnik sales rep. Uh, who sells both wine and spirits, um, and that actually w- we met through one of one of the gentlemen named Abel, uh, who lives up here and, and represents Skernick Wines and sells the entire portfolio of wine and spirits to the various uh, places. So we we come up here, and and Abel lives up here, but I come up here, you know, one because my sister is here, it's easy, but two, you know, we we want to support the customers who support us. Um, so you know, Rochester Cocktail Revival. You know, has been going on now for what, like seven years or something yeah, close wild. to that. So yeah, so I, I come up every year, and sometimes other colleagues of mine come up here, and and we, you know, we we put on different spirits events, educational seminars, trainings, things like that. You know, uh, through Rochester Cocktail Revival. Yeah, and and Rochester is kind of an interesting market because for for our size, the demand we have for beer is wild. Yeah. It is astonishingly big. For I mean, your size, the for the demand and love and passion you have for rum is shocking. It's insane. Pound the, for pound for pound. It's, the it's rum, shocking. The rum community here is like one super deep and also like crazy knowledgeable. I've learned a lot from some of the passionate people here. I love I love rum. That's what we were tasting the other night sure, was this yeah, was the we Rum Chester event at the Cub Room, uh, which was facilitated by Baytown Spirits. Uh they just moved into a beautiful new store. Yeah, in just the other day, right? Just stunning. Yeah, um, huge, and uh, they're not not to make an advertisement for Baytown, but I mean, really, the new store is going to be really special. There's a few stores in Rochester, um, wine and liquor stores that do things right, and it's you know Baytown and Parkway and Pinnacle that are really have a great mentality of how to how to stock a store, both for you know the general general desires. But also for if you want to go and try different things, if you want to get interesting stuff, they really take the effort to do that. So, and um, I, I want to say, and I'm going, I'm going to speak slightly out of turn because oh, I, I do not work in any of those shops. So, you know, I, I can't speak to the internal politics of you know exactly how they do things. But uh, the amount of times I've heard a consumer come up to me and say, hey, I can't find this thing, whatever whatever that spirit might be, because I deal in spirits, not wine, but wine too. I can't find this item, you know, where can I go? A lot of these types of shops, you know, that Chris just mentioned are the types of shops that have a buyer or buyers who are very thoughtful in what they do. So if it's not on the shelf already, there probably is someone that you can, you can go to in that shop and say, Hey, I had this thing or I heard of this thing and barring it not being one of these 
you know, 23 year old Pappy Van Winkle where the allocation <laughs> goes out once a year yeah. and that, and, and, and they may or may not get any provided it's something that is regularly or semi-regularly stocked by a distributor. You can probably say, Hey, you know, the next time you're ordering from Skernick wines, would you mind tacking on a couple of bottles of blah, blah, blah? Because the answer is like, we do business with that customer and they're probably going to be able to do that for you. Yeah. And what a, what a great service too, because it's, it's not fair to expect that any store, regardless of how good the store is, is going to have all the things all the time from all the producers, because it's not, it's not fair to them to stock that much stuff. It's not fair to the distributor to have things sitting on the shelves right. and not being optimal. Not that spirits really go off sitting in the bottle. No, but no one, no one wants, I mean, you know, this is uh, they're they're putting their, their money down and, no one, you know, they're not a library. They're not a biblioteca. They're a, they're a business, you know, and, and especially during the pandemic where I I know that, you know, I think people are, are shopping in inside of, of, of retail shops again, but you know, for a long time, you know, maybe it was more like curbside pickup or something. So, you know, people didn't have a chance to hand sell some of these more dorky items to people. Oh, for sure. And a lot of those take time. Um, you know, for me, it's an easy sell. Like, Oh, this is weird. And unique and also fascinating. It's not just bad because yeah. there's obviously a difference between sure. weird and awesome and weird and terrible. <laughs> yeah, if weird is a byproduct of a well-made item, you know, let's say Jamaican rum. I think people yeah. use the word funky a lot. You know, the, that weird funkiness is a byproduct of the, of the process. And, you know, if you know the difference between flawed and unflawed, you know, the ones that are good are unflawed and they just happen to be you know, on the, on the funkier side of things relatively. Yeah. Well, and that was really interesting because we, you know, we tasted through, well, you had about 10 things at that event yeah. of varying different levels of approachable to very odd and awesome. And it's, and I tasted things that night, you know, somebody, uh, somebody had a sample of something that was, um, uh, Meredith, who's kind of our, our rum Chester sure she is. Uh, head of, head of we, chair. We've met before. Um, and, uh, you know, she had a sample of something. They're like, oh yeah, this definitely, it has acetone in it. Yeah. How do you, like, to me, it's like, hmm. because I am, I've been working through a lot of tasting notes. You see, yeah, you see my, my tasting sheet right in front of you. <laughs> um, and it's like, yeah, acetone is a flaw. This is, it is a flaw, but sometimes a little bit of volatile acidity in wine, sometimes a little bit of that doesn't not work. No, and it's a lot of works. mental balancing. Like, how do you balance those things? But that's like, that's an evaluation of, yeah. you know, not just judging, but like, is this, is this sellable? Is this for what community or how do you, how do you balance that stuff? Right? Yeah. You know, look, we're, we're drinking alcohol. Yes. Right. Uh, and in, within alcohol, there are a lot of uh, compounds and, and chemical components to alcohol from the early, you know, if you if we know about distillation from what comes off of the still in the very beginning to when you reach, you know, that kind of peak, that heart of the distillate to the, to the very end, you know, there's a lot of different types of alcohol that exist within there. And I think like you just said, you talked about acetone and I'm not going to get into the science mostly because I'm not a, I'm not a chemical engineer. Yeah. Uh, but a little bit goes a long way. There's a reason why alcohol alcohols are used in perfume making, right? These are these are great ways to carry flavor and aroma. So, you know, when you talk about something like mezcal, mezcal is a good example. You know, mezcal, the the art of the mescalero, the maestro, the maestro mescalero is to balance these 
heads, which on their own can be quite dangerous. I mean, you're talking about something that, you know, there's a reason why a lot of these guys, a lot of these mescaleros, you look at, look at them in the eye and they have what looks like cataracts and it's probably methanol poisoning from years and years of tasting the heads, right? The heads, uh, the puntas, uh, and then the, the hearts in the middle, the corazon, and then the tails, the colas. And, you know, within those three, uh, those three cuts of alcohol, you're having, you know, things, when I hear acetone, I think of like really, really high toned, like very, you know, and, and it reminds me of, you know, something like a rubbing alcohol or a chemical product and, and high tone, like in music, it would sing in falsetto. Yes. Right. Right. Yep. It was slicing through everything, right. which, you know, in, in some ways that slicing reminds me of high acid, you know, high acid wine or high acid you know, adding, a, you know, squeezing lemon or right. lime on a dish to slice through the fattiness yeah. and the richness. In some ways, it conceptually works. In some ways, it's like, oh, this is stinging my... It's stinging, nose. but but it's stinging, but it's fleeting. It's, short, yeah. it's short-lived, and I think the point is to de- deliver a certain pop. Uh, in When you think about the flavor arc, it's something that starts it off in, I'd say, in like a perfume, it would be one of those more light flowery aromas that fades away very quickly. It delivers quickly and then fades away. And what you're left with is the remainder of that flavor arc as you work, work your way back down towards the base and and the base stays with you, uh, you know, for, for much longer. So like acetone, you know, when that's all you taste and, and I think a lot of people, you know, in, in, let's use mezcal again, talk about band-aids, you know, and again, that like kind of high tone chemical thing, those that are made, you know, cheaply or poorly too low in alcohol, you know, or just cut the way they make their cuts. Um, you know, that could be received as dirty, but you know, those that are, those that are good are, are so good. Oh, stunning. So we're also, so part of what we, we were chatting the other night, like, Oh, let's chat. And what kind of things do we want to talk about? So we can nerd out about spirits and philosophical parts about spirits and all that stuff for a long time. But we kind of connected on different styles of food. And one of the things that came up was spirit pairing with foods, which is not something that's as common, you know, wine pairings are, you know, that's the, it's not, it shouldn't, it's not the gold standard, but it's what everybody thinks of. With I think pairings. it's easier. It's more, it's more approachable. More people can, more people drink wine and consume it in large quantities because of its alcohol content and its price. Yeah. yeah. Oh, for sure. And then it's, you know, a lot of fruity things and it's, it is soft and easy. Right. And it's easy. And then beer pairings have certainly become on vogue in the last, you know, 20 years where you'll see whole beer pairing dinners. We had one recently with one of our, you know, star local brewers, uh, Mortalis at good luck. Like they had a whole dinner doing that stuff, pairing with all their wild, you know, wild beer creations with huge fruit and giant, giant adjunct stouts and everything else. Um, and then cocktail pairings, which we see a lot of those dinners this week with the RCR, which is amazing. You know, you can do so many different directions with cocktails, with, you know, bitter flavors and high acid and low acid and big alcohol and rounded, all those things. But spirits on their own offers a certain different kind of challenge when it comes to pairings. Sure because does. of the intensity. Yeah, because of the intensity, because depending on the thing you're eating, Alcohol has a way of potentially exacerbating something like spicy, right? Spicy. People think, oh, well, tequila, 
mezcal. Uh, that's going to go great with this salt, this fire roasted salsa, you know, using whatever the local hot, you know, this ghost pepper salsa. And yeah, like maybe in the form of a cocktail because that, that mezcal or tequila or whatever is also balanced by a tremendous amount of sugar, always, almost always, uh, and, and maybe some acidity, right? So, so there you're providing balance and you're providing some sort of fat for the palate. Uh, but without that, if you were to just be like, oh, this comes from Mexico and so does that salsa over there, let me have a bite of this salsa and wash it away with this mezcal, you're going to blow your face up was going to happen it's fascinating because that's exactly so the mental direction i was thinking on this was it's it is I don't, i'm not sure the right word to use to describe what i'm thinking but it's a bit pigeonholey to say oh mezcal comes from mexico which means we need to pair it with mexican food right. it's limiting and you know a bit you know centric oh it has to pair with mexican food not to say it doesn't it right. certainly does especially you know the complicated smoky things which we'll talk about in a minute we deal with this. We deal with this idea, and in in, in lots of ways, you know, yeah. when you're talking about how about let's stick with Mexico as the example. We recently started working with a gin called Condesa. Ooh, it's it's beautiful. It's out of Mexico City. Um, it's using all you know Mexican ingredients, but you know it was conceptualized from a perspective of you know Mexican culture and and paying homage to you know, the different traditions of Mexico, or you're talking about like a rum, like Charanda, right? Um, Charanda is its own, its own, not AOC, but, you know, classification of rum uh, from Michoacan. And, you know, again, it's, it's beautiful cane based distillate, sometimes a blend of molasses and like a more of an agricole, sometimes hundred percent agricole. Um, these don't just belong in Mexican restaurants. These are, you know, world-class spirits that I'm a, I'm a gin drinker. Hard stop. I don't, oh, you know. absolutely. It, do, it doesn't matter. Like, do what? Just because you, uh, I, I can only drink gin and tonics if, you know, like I'm, I'm, I'm in, a, in, a, in a dive bar or in a Spanish restaurant. No, like I love gin because I love gin because it's multifaceted, comes from everywhere. Uh, and, and they have different applications. They, because they're all different, uh, you know, they, they each has their own different occasion. Yeah. And I think gin is also one of those things like, we'll we'll talk about specific you know, expressions and regionality. But yeah. I think gin is one of those things that has kind of almost a universal opportunity to be of the place where it was made. Sure. Because gin, for a lack of better way of saying it, is a flavored vodka. Um, sure. That is flavored with botanicals. You know, from what people consider a traditional, you know, London dry style is dominated by juniper. Not to say you still shouldn't use juniper in all the other places because it's not really gin if it doesn't have juniper in it. Yes. Um, but the rest of the flavor profile is completely up for anything you do with it. And there's no reason why you couldn't have a definitive Mexican gin using, you know, epazote or using what, you know, Mexican oregano or whatever you would decide to do to make a truly Mexican gin yep. in a way that really could work in a very different way than like I've, uh, I've one of my, uh, my shelf that's uh, an Indian gin. They're using Indian spice. I places. haven't even looked, but we sell both Jinjiji and That's Hapusha. The yeah, the Jinjiji. Yeah, those are those are great. And they also they also do do one that is um a really heavy dose of Darjeeling tea. Ooh, that it's sounds like, they, like it's a called delight. Darjeeling. Like it's another another gin that they yeah. offer with a blue label. It's very good. They're in, they're completely endemic. You know, uh, 
India, it makes a lot of sense. You know, they're from from the old British colonization, you know, yeah. so there's a very strong, you know, residual culture left over for gin drinking and otherwise. But even so, it's it has a London dry backbone, but they totally. call it India dry, which makes complete sense because it has the inspiration from the background, but the spice profile, and you can sit with it and you're like, oh, yes. This is, you can taste that history in that glass because it's London dry, but with that real Indian character to it. And it's like, oh, how much opportunity is there to express those things and give something different to people? (laughs) The the answer is all the opportunity because gin is something that's relatively, uh, relatively quick to make. You know, you need to dial in your recipe or else, you know, you're just another, another person trying trying to do the thing not well well and balancing you know how are you infusing your things are you kettle cooking it are you steam infusing it or whatever you're doing there is uh there have never been more gins available to you from every you know from from every town in in new york you don't need to go outside of new york you can you will you will not exhaust the amount of gins that are made in new york which this wasn't the case you know 10 years ago when i when i first started at skernick that was not at all the case. What one of the first people, you know, uh, one of the first distillers that we brought on was was Greenhook Gin Smiths. This guy yep. Stephen D'Angelo, um, uh, he makes his gin in, in Greenpoint, and you know, and 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 before Greenhook, you know, Brooklyn Gin, Joe, Joe Santos, and, and 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 Amal from Brooklyn Gin, and it's just like, and then the farther away, this is the other thing, like you know, as a guy who sells gin. We don't sell as much Greenhook gin in Rochester as we do in, you know, Bay Ridge or actually Bay Ridge. I don't know if that's a great example either. <laughs> as we as we do in Carroll Gardens yes. in, in Brooklyn, because every single town has their own, you know, their own local gin. As you work your way out into Long Island, there's gins in Westchester and you make it up to Albany and you go to Buffalo and you right. know, Lockhouse is Buffalo and they love Tommy Rotter. And then you go to Rochester and you have Black Button right across the way. And it's just like gin is one of those things. And every whiskey producer starts with a gin and vodka because their whiskey needs time to age. Yeah, you have to. There's a glut on this. And you got, you're going to have to, you, the consumer, need to do a little due diligence and ask some questions to the people who work there because you're going to have to weed your way through all of the gins. Absolutely. And I've had, you know, I've had many initial offerings from distilleries and I've had some really good stuff from distilleries when they opened. I've had some really bad stuff from distilleries when they opened. And a lot of times it's learning the process. It's learning your distilling. It's learning your cuts. It's learning your materials. It's doing all that stuff. But it's when you have that thing, it's like you don't need to bring in a, you know, a gin from Long Island or wherever to have a good expression. We have we have many good expressions here in town, but I love, you know, that, you know, I think Mexico is a great topic to talk about all these food pairings because yeah. it's so, it's such a wide ranging group of cuisines that are often pigeonholed into one thing, especially in a lot of, you know, a lot of cities and a lot of places it's pigeonholed into one thing while it is a wide ranging, crazy diverse cultural, you know, mishmash of things. Yeah. Mexican food. It it most certainly is. And I think, you know, my, my, my greatest context context, I, I suppose, you know, for, for the cuisine would be, you know, that of Puebla, that of Oaxaca. I think most people at this point, you know, they either go to Mexico and they, they vacation, 
you know, and pick, pick a place that's a beach town where they vacation and maybe they're hanging on resorts or they decide to, you know, go for something a little bit maybe deeper and, and, um, uh, has, I don't know, historical or culturally, you know, deep where maybe they're going to Oaxaca and they're, you know, they've, they, they know someone there and they're taking trips to the, the different municipalities within the state of Oaxaca. Um, but anyway, uh, you know, food, the food is diverse. I mean, if you want to use Mexico as the example, the food is really, really diverse. And even within any particular state, use Oaxaca as the example. You know, the the, the food varies greatly from from uh, town to town and, and village to village, and everybody has their own take on things. And you know, that goes for the distillates, that goes for the food, it goes for the language. Yeah, you, know, you have a lot, of, a lot of different mishmashes of people that have been, you know, in these places for a long time, and, and with that comes, you know, diversity. And, yeah. So I mean, let's let's talk about what we have in our glass because it'll drive uh, drive some of our pairing notes. So this is sure. a, you know, it's mezcal, and I'm gonna I'm gonna say a general statement, which isn't a hundred percent accurate, but generally for those that are drinking mezcal and enjoy it, we're drinking it the unaged version, mm-hmm. which would be labeled as a Hoven. Um, Hoven, yes, not not blanco because that's more of a tequila. It's not inaccurate, but it's nope. also not necessarily what's usually it's on the It's mostly consumed, yeah, consumed young, consu- consumed unaged. If, but, but, but I will say, as somebody who, who educates and, and pours, if the thing that gets you involved with the category is something with age on it, is something that reminds you of, say, bourbon. I like drinking bourbon, so I like drinking Añejo or Reposado, whether that's tequila or mezcal, if that's the thing that gets you all hot and bothered and gets you interested, please do that. And Absolutely. then, and then, you know, if the bartender sees that you're excited and engaged, you know, maybe they'll pour you a taste of something unaged and, and say, Hey, you, you should try this. You seem like you would like this and, and work your way backwards to the stuff that the way they drink it there. Yeah. And it's kind of an important, it's an important point because you can fall down the rabbit hole of nerdery and depth of spirit making and food and everything. But being able to communicate your passion to people of all different backgrounds and all different levels of knowledge Mm. and also comfort levels of what they're used to is one of the most important things that obviously you can do as somebody who's representing a distributor and talking to stores and talking to people at events, but that all of us can do that are passionate about food and drink in general is how to, making it approachable and leading people, not leading people, but giving them the opportunity to try amazing things. Yeah. But it's not often a jump from zero to a hundred. No. And the difference between education, hospitality and assholery <laughs> is, you know, is, right? is, 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 um, is great. And I think a lot of people, you know, I think a lot of people don't prefer educating at the novice level, although there are far more aha moments I find that happen at the novice level and, and watching a person, you know, go from not understanding to a light bulb going off in, in front of you, you know, pouring when you're pouring inside of a, re- a retail shop and they taste something and it's explained to them in a way that doesn't make them feel stupid you know, it's not condescending. It's just a little tidbit of information that maybe puts that whatever the sip was into context. 
that's a beautiful thing. And not everybody enjoys doing that. I think that's the difference between, you know, those, those educators and teachers that we have all had where we're like, man, I remember, you know, my second, my second grade teacher, you know, I remember her name. I remember why we loved her, you know, and I remember how I wish I had, I wish I had my, I wish my garmage chef in culinary school cared about teaching the way, you know, some of the other chefs did because I, that class of all the classes is the one I, I actually, I look to the most now and, and he was so disengaged at the time. Well, and it's one of those things that means everything in a kitchen, right? It's, it is, it is what makes a kitchen run. Yeah. Is that station. Yeah. Explain a little bit about Garmage. Yes. I mean, Garmage is the cold, the typically the cold station or like the appetizer station, but more like the cold station. So if you're in a restaurant that has, and you know, restaurants are all broken out differently and not, they're not all like a French brigade system. But if you were in a classic French kitchen, Garmage is preparing your cold appetizers, sometimes your hot appetizers, but all of those salads, all of the raw and pick a raw thing, um, and then uh, that includes, you know, your terrines and your pâtés and all the the charcuterie and you know cheese is its own thing. But yeah, um, so there's a lot of a lot of preparation. There's a lo- there's a lot of technique used in these things, and it's one of those subject matters that you know if you happen to have a person who loves doing it and is good at it, there's a lot to learn. Um, but sorry, we, we keep meandering. No, absolutely. But I I think what we're going to do, we're going to, we're going to round up. We're actually going to take a break and we're going to taste what we have, explain what we're doing and then talk specifically about pairings. Okay. And I think it's, you know, just to finish off our, your kitchen conversation, you know, it's, it's the balance between some of the old mentalities of this is only the right way of doing things. And we're going to yell at you and we're going to do all this stuff. And I think we're seeing there's so many opportunities to engage different people of different backgrounds, people of different levels of knowledge, but it has to be done with intentionality and with respect for everybody's knowledge and backgrounds. And we can, we can build a better sustainable system, both in the kitchens and with people enjoying great products like this. If, but only if we are inclusive, we are accepting people and teaching them and, you know, getting people up to, better and better levels and not driving them out because of, you know, old school mentalities. Yeah. And I, I don't know if the old school mentality is ever going to fully die, you know, no. it's propagated, uh, and, and propelled, you know, um, in certain, in certain kitchens, but I don't want to work in that kitchen. I, it's not, it's not necessary. You know, let, tell me, tell me the expectation, show me how to do it. If I, if I'm not up to snuff and unable to perform, then you, you this is New York. This is employment at will. You know, you could, you could fire me. I don't need you berating me or throwing pans into the walls or, or, or trying to stab me with your knife over, over knife work. Right. Um, you know, and, and so I think the vast majority of that mentality is behind us yet. I, I don't think it'll ever fully go away. It's a little mi- militaristic, uh, you know, not, not in a, you know, Wait, for, for you good s- or for bad, but it, right. it has, it has a very, you know, that, that, ty- that type of vibe. And, and for some people they thrive in that. And for a lot of people, they don't, they don't want that. And, and that's, you know. Yeah. I mean, there's a reason people use the French brigade system right. for, I mean, it's militaristic from top to bottom, but all right, that's enough philosophical. And we're going to take a quick break and we'll be back to talk specifically about pairings and cuisines and all sorts of things. So we'll be right back. Just a reminder to go to curatemeals.com if you'd like to order your food for September 15th. Make sure to go by September 14th at noon so you don't miss out on your chance for a fantastic meal from Curate Meals. 
hope to see you at the next event, either picked up at the German house or delivered right to your door. All right, and we're back and we're ready to talk talk Mezcal because we've got a beautiful one in the glass. But uh, just a quick reminder for everybody, if they want to find, you know, kind of find Skernik products and find amazing producers, is there an easy way for people to learn about like what sure. you have in your portfolio and yeah, where you might I be mean, able to buy it? Yeah, if you go on to skernik.com or skernikwines.com. Spelling? Uh, S-K-U-R-N-I-K, Skernik yep. Wines. You can find, and, and it'll, let, it'll ask you to choose the state that you're in because uh, we sell to New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, uh, Pennsylvania, which is a state-run state. Uh, we also sell in California, Ohio, Kentucky, Indiana. Uh, but we're based out of out of New York. So anyway, go on the website and you could uh, put in any number of searches we have a lot of cocktails and cocktail photos up there. We have beautiful producer descriptions and 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 spirit and and wine descriptions that get into the minutia of everything. Uh, a lot of what we do at this point is there's a lot, a tremendous amount of effort put into the content uh, that is the Skernik voice and and website. And and you know you need to educate through those words. So yeah. you can learn a lot through there. And then and then from there, you know, think about your local wine shop. And you know if there's a wine shop that you know they have a selection that's not totally, you know, ubiquitous with, you know, that's the type of shop that almost, I can almost guarantee does business with Skernik Wines. Yeah. So, and I'll, I'll bring up three stores again. These are always going to be my recommendation. When we uh, send out pairing notes for Curate, uh, for our events we do every other week, you know, we recommend that you go to, you know, Parkway and Baytown and Pinnacle, all really well-run stores that have a huge variety of things. So Plenty and, of other great stores in Rochester. Absolutely. As well. But, no doubt. Yeah. I bring them up because you know they're they're ones I go to all the time. There you go. Um, so um, we have a mezcal in our glass, and this is. Uh, can you give a brief um, brief rundown of what this is sure. and where it comes from? Sure. So the name of the brand is called Gusto Historico, and Gusto Historico is let's call it an independently bottled mezcal. So. Uh, this is the the dude who started Gusto Historico. His name is uh, Marco Ochoa, and and he was one of the founding partners of a, a bar in in Oaxaca called Mezcaloteca. And Mezcaloteca has their own uh, independently bottled export brand called Mezcalosfera, and this is very similar to to that idea where Marco is working with a finite number of producers throughout uh, the different uh, areas within Oaxaca. And he is bottling, you know, single producers and not, not always single variety. In fact, this is a blend of three different varieties. Um, the, the, the municipality where this comes from is called Miahuatlan. I'd say of all of the, like, regions within Oaxaca, I think Miahuatlan is one of the more distinct and in, in a blind taste. There's something about the yeast okay. which exists in this area. And in a blind tasting, I can almost always pick it out. It has a note of like green banana and melon and like strawberry seed and like very minty and herbal. And it, it, it variety, like variety aside, variety plays into the way this is going to taste as well. But the yeast itself is a, is a, you know, more, it's not constant because it varies wildly from yeah. place to place. But, you know, it, there's something about this area that has a, a telltale through line. Yeah. You know? Well, and let, let's talk about Mezcal for a second at a higher level because higher. this is, Mezcal is one of those things that is, like you said, hyper specific to a producer and hyper regional because 
unless you get to what is now becoming a the higher commercial versions that are using you know added commercial yeasts and using everything else, the a huge amount of the production is done in varying levels of traditional styles with you know classic stills and live fire and you know um, natural fermentations that take a long time. It's one of those things where when we talk about place, you know, people talk about um, it's early in the morning and I forget terroir. my words. Yes, uh, terroir when it comes to wine, you know, it comes up all the time. It sounds pretentious. It sounds this. But what we're trying to taste in some of these amazing products like Mezcal is this taste of the place it was made more than almost any other spirit and really almost any other produced alcohol product because it's product that was grown in the area. It's product that was fermented in the area. It was cooked on a certain kind of, you know, a certain kind of oven. It was ground and all that stuff done in a specific place. And it still has ties to historical methods the vast majority of the time. Mezcal is, yeah, by by and large, remains a very antiquated method. Um, yeah, there are, there are some large, it's now becoming large industry, but the vast majority of mezcal that's out there today and this all, all of the mezcal that Skernik Wines produces or produces, uh, works with either imports or distributes um, is all made in, in varying, uh, varying classifications of, uh, you know, are artisanal. And, and I, I know that that word can be totally bastardized and it's like saying something is like diet, but it, I, I mean it in the literal sense where these things that, you know, the methods haven't changed in all of the generations and they're not going to. Yeah. And it's, it's important not to like, yes, lots of things, um, just as a prelude to spirit labeling, we're not going to go into spirit labeling as a whole discussion, but I mean, even within just the world of mezcal, the, oh, yeah. the labeling, it all mean, it all means something, you know, yeah. ancestral versus artisanal versus right. those are, those are controlled words and are at least becoming vastly more accepted, but something always to be careful of when you're looking at spirit labels is they'll say small batch. They'll say this, it is not controlled. It doesn't mean anything. Nice thing with a lot of mezcal now, especially, is they they have new designations that are being pushed. Um, you know, when he's saying that you know mezcal, um, you know ancestral, which is it defines a certain cooking method, it defines a certain fermentation method, and that's awesome. We get to taste that style. Um, but let, let's talk about this specific one because the notes you just brought up, you brought up fresh, crunchy fruit flavors yep. and notes. Um, people. Well, often, if you think about mezcal as, oh, I've had mezcal, it's big and smoky and, lack of a better way of saying, crispy. You know, it's it's sure. it's spiky, it's smoky, and it's got a little bit of the, you know, agave character. This is not that. There is some smoke to it, but this is balanced and rounded. I haven't tasted it yet, but on the nose, this is completely phenomenally rounded and very that fruitiness and fruity floral musky but this is so delicate and articulate yeah and i'm just going to go right down the the back here one of the beautiful things about a lot of the mezcals out there today and a lot of the mezcals that skernick wines works with is they're very very transparent i i we wish that other um, that there was more transparency in in distillation. Everybody, a lot, a lot of people, you know, hold hold close to their their methods, and they don't want to really like pull the curtain back. But with mezcal, most of the time, the information is right there on the label for you to look at. You know, here you go, Gusto Historico. 
who's the maestro. Well, this is Emmanuel Ramos, which is the son, 20-something-year-old son of Victor Ramos. You know, it comes from this place called Miahuatlan, which is, I don't know, five and a half hours you know, almost due south of Oaxaca City. When you look at it on a map, you're like, oh, that's going to take us no time. But, it, but you know, you're talking about you get through Oaxaca, you go from Oaxaca City, you know, south into uh, Matatlan. And then basically you enter the mountains and think about it like the Cali- like California switchbacks, like riding along the coast. Oh, it, yeah. It's that the entire time. And, and Matatlan, that last town's at 5,000 feet. You start tearing your way up higher and then like down lower and, and you end up in like the river valley. And like uh, the whole time you're on these switchbacks uh, en route to Miahuatlan, like you might fall off the mountain. Like you're on, you're in a, like I was there and last time I was there, I was in a van, you know, with another, with maybe half, more than a half dozen, probably like eight or nine of us. And, you know, and we're going up the hill and then like the, the van stalls out and we start rolling backwards and there are no rails and there's, you know, uh, your biblical inscriptions like carved into the mountain where someone else previously died. And like, <laughs> you might fall off the mountain into the valley. And as you, you're working your way down this place, Mihuatlan is the last mountain range of the central valleys before you get down to like the Pacific coast. Okay. And it is, it is stunning. This is the mountains, you know, they grow a lot of herb there. They grow a lot. This is like where psychedelic mushrooms also come from. Gotcha. Uh, this is, you know, you get, you get past me and like, that's where the rolling stones learned about mushrooms. Gotcha. You know, it's a real, it's a real thing. Anyway. So, so back to, back to this, this, this Gusto Historico and it, it goes into what kind of oven it was cooked in while well, it was cooked in an earthen oven in the ground, a conical earthen oven where they build, you know, big, big uh, uh, dig a big pit and then line it with hot stones, and then they put you know wood into there uh, into the oven. And depending on the wood that grows in that at that elevation, it's not like they're just calling up like their local like wood guy. It's like they got wood, you know. And and you're not you're going to find woods uh, types of trees and wood that is endemic to that place. Um, and then you know the type of water they're using is it spring water or river water or rainwater or well in this case it's well water. Um, and then as far as like batch size. This is a 450 liter batch, which is nothing, it's nothing. when it comes to spirit producing. It's nothing. It's, it's so small. But I, I think this. And I, I didn't I, talk variety. We should talk after yeah, you yeah. say what you're going to say. We'll talk about what is in here that leads to some of these flavors. Yeah. So when you when you brought up those minty eucalyptus like notes, because there's some dense greenness, there's some fruitiness. But I think what's what's special about it is yes, the nose is special. It's phenomenal. But on the palate, it's sweet but not cloying not not in an added sugar kind of way but oh, it's yeah. it's approachable but it has that backbone of that um you know that savory it's got some mushroominess to be honest totally. it's got some mushroominess it's got some smoke it's rounded and complex this is something you want to sit with this isn't this isn't shot mezcal. I, I recommend is, sitting with it because there is, you know, there's volatility with mezcal because it's oh, a it's blend changing. of the heads and the hearts and the tails. You pour yourself a glass and and give it. Pour yourself, you know, whether it's one ounce or two ounces, pour it or maybe pour yourself two different glasses side by side. Leave one of them and don't come back to it for 30, 40, an hour, couple hours and watch how it evolves. And I also find 
that, that mezcal they talk about with wine. They talk about like, oh, it's a fruit day or, oh, it's an earth day. And like, you know, based on lunar cycles and, you know, uh, <laughs> I mean, you know, <laughs> you, I, I, you, yeah, you, I, la- yeah. you laugh, but like I could tell you when, when you're dealing with fruit in particular, you yeah. know, whether that's a, a, you know, a raspberry eau de vie or you're talking about wine or sure. you're talking about, you know, agave, these the flavor profiles on a date it's not just your taste buds there's there's more to it i can't speak to all all of it but uh, i i've had the same mezcal two days in a row you know while skiing and they taste nothing like one another and and, and there's nothing there's nothing that has changed other than the day of the week and like you know well and i think that's one of the other things that's fascinating about tasting and especially if you're tasting Not critically, because critical tasting is a very different thing. You're taking a lot of time and effort to do it. But tasting for enjoyment, the way you taste something is going to change. I I recall not even that long ago, I was tasting in my buddy's leather shop. And yes, it's environmental because there's a huge amount of leather around. But I tasted that stuff very differently in his shop than I tasted it here. Yeah, And all those things matter. But so we... Talk about the varieties in here because this this okay. is a complicated, phenomenal product. Yeah, I mean, really delightful. So let, let's just say to to give you a baseline, when you go into a retail shop or into a bar, right? And in a retail shop, maybe you're purchasing a bottle that costs in between thirty to fifty dollars. Ninety nine percent of the time, it's a variety called Espadine. E S P A D I N. Espadine. It looks like a two hundred fifty pound pineapple, mm-hmm. right? with a 250 pound pineapple, like cut it open. It has a core similarly to the way a pineapple does. It's very high in sugar. Uh, Espadine is used as the workhorse of the agave world because it grows faster and has higher levels of sugar, which then translates into better, better volume, or higher better, yields, higher yields. Yep. And, and, and there, and you know, this is a business at the end of the day. And, it, but it's also very, very sweet, like in, intensely sweet in terms of its level of, you know, bricks, the measurement of sugar. So the varieties used in, in this bottle we're tasting right now are three different varieties. Um, and two of them belong to this family called Karwinski. K-A-R-W-I-N-S-K-I-I. It's not a Mexican name. That's a, that's Polish. Sounds awfully Polish to me. Sounds yeah. Polish to me as well. Um, those varieties are called Madre Quiche or Madre Quiche. It could be pronounced either like Biscaya or Biscaya mm-hmm. or Biscay apple, you know, uh, the other variety, another variety is called Baiquiche, which is which is an offspring of the Madre Quiche, uh, like in the same family, Karwinski. Uh, and then from there, you have another variety called Tepestate, which can be spelled with uh, a Z or can be spelled with an X in the middle of it, depending on if you're speaking Spanish or maybe you are one of the you know one of the more uh, native uh, people uh, from from Mexico. The 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 spelling changes wildly from town to town. Quiche might be C-U-I-S-H-E, C-U-I-C-H, C-U-I-X-E. You know, there's a lot of ways just because there's been, there's so many different cultures and peoples down there. So, yeah. so you have three different varieties. You have Madre Quiche, Bi Quiche, and Tepestate. If I say Espadine looks like a 250 pound pineapple, Karwinski's, both Madre Quiche and uh, Bi Quiche, you know, they look like big asparagus. Oh, fascinating. You know, they're, they're, they have a much skinnier stalk, even though Madre Quiche does have a fatter stalk with higher sugar content. Um, they look 
that, you know, they're, they're way thinner, um, you know, and have this like little kind of like carrot top at the top, you know, and, and when you shave all of the, the leaves, the pencas away, you have what looks like a big asparagus versus a big pineapple. Right? Fascinating Fasc- stuff. And then tepas, and they take they take longer to grow typically, you know, whether they're growing wild or or often like semi-wild where maybe they started out as cultivated and then, you know, the seeds blew away or, you know, some something like that. Right, uh, they're tended and, to, but they're not like actively driven. But like, oh, look, there's a new one that just popped up. I didn't plant that. It's, it, even if I started out planting, and, and it goes the other way around. This started out as wild, and maybe it had a baby and an ijuelo, and I harvest the baby, and then I plant it. So now you're dealing with like semi-cultivated. And then you have this third variety called tepestate, which is like a high elevation. Like you, as you're in those mountains and you're starting to climb, you know, all of a sudden you enter like, oh, Tepestate country, you cross this like horizon of elevation where Tepestate, you look up and there's this agave that's really broad leaved and kind of gangly, uh, you know, m- much different than everything else and kind of twists and contorts and it's hanging upside down from a rock face and it's the size of a mini coop. And they're gigantic and they take, you know, 20 to 35 years to, to grow. Um, and, you know, they're able to hang off that rock because they secrete this acid that actually like eats away at the rock and allows their roots to burrow into the rock. It's the type of variety, if you remember, like, uh, was a karate kid too, where, where, uh, you know, Daniel son has to go and like belay down a mountain to go get that bonsai. It's sort of that vibe. Like it doesn't belong to anybody. And if you want it, knock yourself out, go get it. It and looks absolutely crazy. It's gnarly. I mean and that, that spike in the middle looks, it looks Jurassic. It looks, it looks like little you know, shop of horrors type yeah, of animalistic. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's really, and it's it intense. Tastes animalistic in the same way that, I don't know. I find that like Greek wine, you're like, Oh my, it, ta- it tastes Greek. Oh, you're like, it tastes of, it tastes yeah. of antiquity or something. Yeah. Um, this tastes like tepestate. Yeah. Tepestate, is I'd say of the varieties, there's another type of uh, variety called Salmiana, which looks just like a Tepestate, tastes a lot like Tepestate, maybe a little higher toned, but but you know between quiche, so let let's go back to tasting quiche or Madre quiche and Baiquiche. If you were thinking about the sugar content of like that Espadine, and then you think about uh, the sugar content and the look of an asparagus or like a pine cone, right? A pine cone, you would say it's going to taste more fibrous, more green, more herbal than a big, sweet, succulent pineapple, right? Yeah, makes sense. Right, makes sense. And then you're talking about something like tepestate, which has this wild, like wild, like animalistic, wild, savory, vegetal note. Some grass-fed, you know, grass-fed meat kind of notes. And so now totally. that you mentioned it, it's like, oh yeah, there's this, there's this, meaty minerality which is very different than like you know like riesling like gravelly minerality sure. it's like meat like grass-fed meat minerality some rich depth of minerality yeah. to it that's kind of it's a hard thing to define because it's not it's not exactly the right word but you know what i mean it's that 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 hard hard rich minerality yeah at the well base look, you know it. you get like when you talk about minerality like i don't know i always like think of chablis or maybe like gruner veltliner you know high high like a lot of mineral and like high acid and yeah, stuff finger lakes rieslings there, there you go finger and then and then sometimes with rieslings or maybe so you know i mean if you want to get into wine that's a whole other thing chardonnay yeah. chenin blanc you know sure. you get these kind of like 
with Shannon in particular, you know, you get these sometimes waxy qualities like beeswax. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't necessarily mean sweet. In fact, a lot of it is on the on the nose, but then it's a textural thing that kind of coats the palate. I find that tepestate often has this kind of palate coating quality and this vegetal minerality oh, you speak sure. of. Um, and and yeah, and then and then this is 48.4%, which is in the spectrum of mezcal, you know, most like Traditional mezcal starts at 45% alcohol and then can go up from there. You know, we have plenty of mezcal that goes over 50%, 51%. It's not like cast strength, you know, bourbon or something right. like the that. The highest it gets up to is like 110, but you can, not super common. Look, people, people bottle the the heads, which are, you know, are really high in alcohol. Like you do see bottlings that are quite high, but, you know, a lot of the mezcals that, that Skernik distributes end up falling into the 48 to 50% range. So this is right yeah. on there. And and higher alcohol does help kind of carry, uh, you know, a certain, lead to a certain length and a certain weight on the on the mid palate and the, you know, the flavor arc and experience. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Um, Let, let's talk about pairings. Because okay. so this, this is one, I think this would be an exceptional food pairing mezcal. Because it can go in so many directions. You could serve this, I mean, my first direction, if you're going with meat, this is a great steak mezcal. I, I could tell you, I could tell you personally last night I was, I was here doing a, I was up at my sister's and one of our, our favorite ways to eat is, is a Spanish food. We cook, I cook Spanish food. I like it because it's a very convivial type of dining. We start with a, you know, either a gin and tonic or a martini or some, you know, move into some wine, whether that's conca uh, conca or cava or something bubbly, you know, or you want to work your way into, you know, godeo or, and then move your way into the red wines, whether they're, they're light and juicy or something, you know, or more, you know, a re- old Rioja something. But, you know, we start there and we sit around and we eat and, you know, the food itself is, is simple finger food. It's often best served at room temperature and it's often very fatty, whether you're talking about fatty, fat, like aioli or you're talking about, you know, a big bistec or a chuleta, like a big cut of meat that's been grilled. So you have that, you know, salt, that bitterness on the outside and that fattiness and then a, a good amount of salt. And what are you missing? We just talked about, we talked about, let's, let's go back to basics of flavor profile and what you can taste. You have fat, you know, and, and umami uh, and you have you have salt and you're missing other components, right? Of food. Floral brightness. But this this would bring all that to the table. All that. And to me, I'm thinking I'm thinking meat. I'm thinking that big, but I'm also thinking hard grilled skirt steaks, you know, right on the char, the big. I'm thinking hard grilled fresh seasonal vegetables. Because this this feels seasonal. And I could absolutely see this with Think about like seared spring vegetables. Think about it. Or a beautiful, you know, even a beautiful pasta dish. Like I'm picturing, you know, those, you know, miso brown butter pasta spring vegetable dishes. Yep. Think about it. I, I, I go like right. One of my favorite things to do right now is, you know, go, go to the market and get some maybe like tomato, like heirloom tomatoes and some, oh, you know, yeah. corn just came over the peak, right? All like, day. Right. And then, and then pea shoots are still in full effect right now. And some of those squashes and things. So doing, you know, something, whether it's a hard, you know, that the, a hard grilled piece of meat, which we could talk about in just a second, cause mm-hmm. I have thoughts on that. Uh, you know, that's well salted with, with Malden salt, uh, you know, or, and you want to dress that with, you know, uh, pea shoots and, and sweet corn, you know, Something like a mezcal, as an example, you know, it provides high acid and it provides 
alcohol and it provides fat, especially when you're dealing with something that's at like 48, 49%. It has a coating quality. All of those things help cut right through. It cuts through the meat. It helps carry some of the more delicate herbal qualities of pea shoots or, or herbs themselves. This is one of those like, you know, give me like asparagus or peas with like a, like lemon, lemon zest and like mint and tarragon, like all that stuff. Absolutely. It, it tastes like all of that. Yeah, no, that that would be a beautiful amplifying and accent to the rest of the meal. But, you know, something like this is, this is almost, this is a perfect food spirit. Yeah. Like, you really couldn't pick a better one that would pair with almost anything. Yeah, I agree. But we can talk about, like, you know, great, I was walking around the market this morning, right? I was walking around the market, I bought, you know, I'm buying seasonal fruits, you know, I'm buying peaches. Yeah. And peaches are one of those things where you're talking about desserts, which you could talk about, what are you using in that dessert? You know, it's classic now, American style, using using a bourbon in your peaches in the in the sauce, or you know, you're you know, you're pairing with something like that. Those kind of things are supernatural yeah. and also very very American now. Yeah, you need you know you need dessert is a funny is a funny course, and you need to be careful if you're often dessert we associate with sweet. It's almost always sweet. You know, there's varying degrees of what sweet means, but relative to this mezcal, it's going to be very very sweet. So. Sometimes, depending on the dessert being served, you know, if it's kind of, you know, berries with herbs and like a lightly sweetened like whipped cream, mezcal is perfect. If you're going to go, if you're going to go long on the sugar and make, you know, a peach cobbler with a sweet, like this, this could actually be not, not enough. You'll still, it, you'll feel the alcohol more where like, you know, maybe I would go ahead and add a little bit of sugar and almost make a, like a Oaxacan old fashioned type of ride. Would make complete sense, absolutely. Right? Or add some, you know, even add bitterness and go there in you a, go. you know, Negroni like way with it, it. Exactly, like that. That would stand. That would stand up better. But as as far as like the the beginning courses, the more savory courses go, anywhere from your appetizers all the way, you know, through through your entrees, and especially with like well seasoned, you know, grilled meats that have that, you know, smoke. People, they you know, sm- the the process of cooking agave is part of mezcal. I think most people, when you say mezcal, they say smoky. Te- they think smoky tequila with the worm. That's yeah. like that's what it was for so long. But you'll you'll notice as you start getting into these single varieties, or in this case, an ensemble, a blend of varieties. Um, you know, smoke is just another tasting note somewhere in the tasting. Notes. It's part of the process. This is the antithesis of that. Um, and you kind of you kind of brought up grilled meat because I mean it's something that matters when the style of how you cook a piece of meat. If you're going to be eating meat, you really need to treat it with respect and do it as best as you possibly I can. Got, I got thought. I got thoughts. So let's I, do I, it. I I shop at this this butcher shop. I, I'm from. I live in Brooklyn, and on Smith Street, there is a shop called Paisano's. Okay. Paisano's has the not just the best meat, but is the is the best service and hospitality. I don't want to like get myself in trouble and say in all of Brooklyn, but it is <laughs> arguably the best service and hospitality in addition to the thing they specialize in, in all of Brooklyn. Like like pound for pound where most people are like, oh, I'd rather understaff because I save on payroll. Like these guys are overstaffing to give better service. And like you can think of the example in bars and restaurants when you're like, wow, that cocktail just came so fast and made. And I, and, and I wanted another one and here it is in my, it's like that. So 
Uh, I bought I bought a dry aged ribeye. You know, I asked the guy. You know, he 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 grabbed one and it weighed like three, just over three pounds. Beauty. But it was like you know, it was like there was some dark. You know, it was a little dark on the outside, a little excess fat that I. And he was like, "Let me trim that down for you." So by the time it was all said and done, it weighed like two point nine pounds. You know, it had been dry aged for over thirty days to begin with. And then what I do, all like I've been doing this consistently, is I will heavily salt. A, th- a twice thick pork chop or a ribeye or a duck. I'd score the duck first, but I go ahead and I put that well-seasoned, already dry-aged ribeye onto a rack in the refrigerator, and I don't touch it for like three to five days. I let it sit and cure. Yeah, the, va- the vast majority of steaks that you're cooking at home is, you know, a 24-hour or an overnight is more than enough. When you're talking about those monsters, they need that time let it go. and letting it, letting the outside dry a little more because you want to, you want to define that crust in That's a right. really hard way. Right. Because, because moisture is, is the antithesis antithesis. Oh yeah. Is the, is the enemy of the Maillard reaction. You know, we, we want the protein to really, really, you know, brown caramelize, you know, and, and the wetter that is. So if you ever wondered why, you know, your, uh, your pork loin or your, you know, pick a, your chicken chicken thigh isn't as brown and crispy as that in a restaurant. Well, they're thinking a little bit ahead. And I tried to do the same thing. And if I'm cooking, I was cooking steak for my family. I bought that steak. I bought it four days ago and I had been salting it. And then I brought it up here and put it right back in. The, and anyway, by the time it comes time to cook. And then I don't, do you, have you been down in South Carolina? And, and he, Sh- Sean Brock from Husk, who's no longer at Husk, he moved right, to Tennessee, right. but he has a cooking method called interval cooking where okay, so really, really high heat, best on dry age meats, best on a grill. It doesn't have to be. I, I do it on cast iron also, but you basically start um, f- high 500 degrees on the grill is where I'm at. Just salt and maybe like a brush of oil, but I didn't even use oil yesterday. And you go 30 seconds on each side and then you pull it off. So that's a total of one minute. You double that amount of time for your for your resting. So 30 seconds each side is one minute, two minutes of resting. And then it goes back on 45 seconds on each side. So a minute and a half, three minutes of resting, a minute on each side, four minutes of resting. And huh. then you start back at the beginning. And for that cut of meat, to, uh, I ended up doing that rotation three times. So it's a really long cooking process that involved a timer. Uh, but the end result is sort of like, you know, when you sous vide, you have, uh, you have an even gradation gradient, all yeah. the way through. It's exactly the same thing. I ended up with medium rare from top to bottom charred on the outside. You know what it kind of conceptually reminds me of is, I, I forget the gentleman's name, but he's from, I think from Argentina. It's the, the uh, classic. Uh, what's what, uh, what's yeah, his name? You, you know what, you know who I'm talking to. Uh, Malman? It's some, um, it's something like that. Anyways, the, so he's looking it up, but he's, um, so this, uh, yeah, it's Mal, Malman or something like that. Yeah. But Francis Malman. Francis Malman. Yeah. So it's, and it's might not be a hundred percent right, but he's, so that's right. you'll I see him on right. documentaries and it's kind of, he's doing live fire cooking and it's driving, you know, fire up and down and position up and down. And it's kind of mimicking that mentality where you're using the liveness of the cooking in a very different way than what's now referred to as the reverse sear or the sear or the, you know, the, the sear and bake or whatever. And it's kind of, 
it's kind of aping that mentality of the live fire style cooking when you have like either you're in a restaurant where you're cranking your your grill up and down over a live fire or in that case where you're actually hanging it over a live fire and you're moving it and you're changing the fire position yeah like you're you're really you're tending to it the whole time low you know high high temperature but like there's a there's a methodic you know it's there's a it's both high and slow at the same time you're not rushing in because if you rush in you know, uh, and there's something about here. You're you're bringing it up and taking it down, and bringing it up and taking it down, and and that helps with you know denaturing the protein and like you know what is what is fire? Fire is one of the things that has is like uniquely human. We have right, we have mastered the ability. If you ever like read the book Sapiens, like one of the things that we got, we don't got a lot, but one of the things that we got <laughs> is the ability to wield this natural resource and and use it to our advantage to help do things like break down protein and make it more palatable and you know. yeah well i think what we're gonna do we're i'm gonna tie this back let's let's see let's if i can back. do it let's go. see if i can tie it back because go. we gotta we gotta get you out of here um but that i i love that we we ended on that you know something that is complicated that process it's complicated but what it is is attention to detail and caring for the people caring for the food, which is caring for the people that you're serving it to, which ties back to the mezcal we just had because Amen. it's, that was attention to detail. It was honoring the products that it came from and it's giving us an amazing experience, but it's honoring where it came from. And what I can hope, this is ending on a slightly philosophical note, is as we enjoy these amazing products from, you know, mezcals to rums that are coming from all these different places that we continue to try to do the right thing and make it sustainable for the people who are doing all that work that we honor where it comes from. We give them the respect they deserve and not just talk about it through our lens and we give them the due that they're due. One of the, one of the things about mezcal and, you know, uh, is, is where it's made and who, who it's made by. And I, I hope that everyone has an opportunity at some point right now, travel is, you know, a bit more restrictive, but at some point, if you get a chance to make it down there, you know, you're probably going to, if you're the type of person who's going to go down there at all, you're going to fall in, in love with this place. And I could tell you, you know, when the first time I went to the, and, and I wasn't visiting uh, Emmanuel and Victor Ramos. I was, I was visiting this dude, um, you know, Pedro Vasquez and um, up in Miahuatlan, Tio Pedro, Uncle Pedro. And, you know, it took five and a half hours. We had to go around a rock slide. We almost fell off the mountain a couple of times. We ended up crossing the river to, because of the rock slide. And you end up in this, in this, it's not even a village. It's more like a, a, a rancho, a campo, a camp or something. And maybe there's a hundred people who live in this, in this place, which is the farthest away from like a hospital I've ever been, you know, and we get there and this guy, you know, he practices without calling it biodynamics. He's harvesting under the lunar cycle and we're walking the fields with him. And he has, you know, Arrocaño, which is think about like, an, like that Espadín, except for, 10 feet tall with like pencas that are, you know, a foot wide Crazy. and like swords. And he has, you know, different Karwinskis and he has Tepestate on his property and he has everything on his property. Um, but, you know, we, he opens up some of these bottles, you know, bottles and, and it's the type of story where, you know, he says, and that Tepestate is 25 years old. 
and you say, how do you know that Tepestate is 25 years old? And he says, because the first time I saw that Tepestate, my grandson had just been born, you know, and now my grandson is harvesting that Tepestate. Yeah. And, and not only that, you know, we are people who are, have been invited to their, to their home and they have slaughtered one of their goats and they, you know, they cooked the goat in the ground overnight and they, you know, were sipping on some soup together and they pass around the head because that's the most uh, prestigious part and ceremonial, you know, part. And also the most delicious part of almost, almost any animal. Unreal, unreal. And, you know, and, we're, and you're eating and, you know, it's, it's, it's the place, it's the people, it's the, you know, the, the stories that you come back and get to tell. You know, I, for a lot of, a lot of the people I talk to, they hear what I say and then maybe they go tell it themselves, but they're telling, they're telling my story. I think it's really important that, you know, people have their own stories to tell and it makes you much more connected and appreciative of, uh, you know, th these spirits and these foods uh, that are being made because they're being, they're being made and, and labored. You know, it's a laborious process by people of a place. And I yeah. think that's really important to remember because here, you know, everything, we're, we're a country and a people of convenience. And every, every once in a while, we need to slow down and remember where a lot of this stuff comes from. Absolutely. So, um, let's close out for today. Uh, one, thank you so much for coming over. Yeah, this was a this delight. Was um, why don't you again tell people about Skernik and sure. where they can find out more about what you do and what the whole yes. company does. Skernik Wines, S-K-U-R-N-I-K. Skernik Wines is a, a importer and uh, distributor of wines and spirits, everything from the uh, less expensive to the the top creme de la creme, the tete de cuvee, um, you know, you can go onto the website at skernick.com and you can get a feel for what it is we do. We have a lot of great, you know, blog posts and, and, and education that goes on on the website itself. And we wholesale to all, not all, but a lot of the bars, restaurants, and retailers that you all shop at. So you'd be able, and if you turn the bottle around, there's a good chance that you're going to find, you know, Skernick on the back label. Not always, but often, often enough. Um, and, you know, I, I personally take care of the spirits portfolio, and I have a team of incredible, you know, uh, in, incredibly knowledgeable people that, that help me, uh, you know, manage and, and sell this portfolio. And we're all in it for the same reason. We want to represent, you know, those, those, those spirits and tell those stories. And, you know, we're, uh, you know, and we're not going to compromise really in, in, in that endeavor. Amazing. So again, appreciate, um, reach out, you know, find out some amazing stuff to grab, but thanks so much for coming over and, Oh, hold uh, on. Oh, please. Check, check me out. If you like food, I mean, I'm a real dork. I know I do booze, but I'm a real dork for food. If you're into food also, you can follow me uh, on Instagram at The Clam Jar, T-H-E-C-L-A-M-G-A-R, at The Clam Jar. It's the name of my apartment. It's awesome. not, it's, it's not a, it's not a, it's just, it's just the, uh, it's an extension of myself and, and everything on that is, is all food all the time. I do uh, cooking classes on Wednesdays where you could like follow along. I provide recipes. If you want to DM me, uh, you know, I'll give you recipe and kind of a, you know, 1500 words on the topic. And it's, it's really, really fun as for food dorks. So. Beautiful. So, um, I recommend going out to, you know, amazing bars and stores in our area, grabbing some of this stuff, asking about these and other amazing products. And then generally, um, be good to yourself, be good to others, get vaccinated, stay safe. And Amen. this has been another great episode of the Food About Town podcast.